Well, if you'd open your scriptures to 1 John chapter 5 this morning, I'm going to pick up our reading in verse 16. And as you're doing that, it'll become apparent to you as you're looking at your Bible like, gosh, we're almost out of verses here. Uh, We're running to the end of this book. The answer is yes, we are. Lord willing, we'll finish our study next Sunday of 1 John, at which time I will begin an extended study of 1 Peter. So if you want to read ahead and get that book on your hand, that's good too. But uh, anyway, 1 John, today I'm going to pick up our reading, as I say, in verse 16. 1 John, chapter 5, verse 16. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask, and God will give him life. To those who commit sins that do not lead to death. There is sin that leads to death, and I don't say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there's sin that does not lead to death. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, as we come before you, as always, we're so thankful you're a God who has spoken, and that you've made available to us what you've said. And more than that, through the ministry of your Holy Spirit, you illumine our hearts to understand what you've said. And so Lord, we pray for that opening of understanding within us to this day. Take your truths, clarify them, plant them. And then through your Holy Spirit, enable us as we step out in obedience in our thoughts, our beliefs, and in our actions. Well, thank you as you do that, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Over the last two weeks, uh, we've been moving on toward the end of this chapter. In verses 11 to 13, we were examining and reminding ourselves of this great promise from God, God's great testimony, you remember. The testimony that in Jesus Christ we've been given eternal life. A, A testimony and a promise that is meaningless to the one that doesn't think they're dying. But if somebody knows they're dying then it's a pretty good promise, you know, eternal life. The Scripture tells us all are dying apart from Jesus Christ. Uh, As Ephesians 2 puts it, not only are we dying, but we're helpless and hopeless and without God. The three great sad descriptors that God gives us of a world apart from Jesus, apart from redemption. The truth is, God did something about that, sending his son into this world. And those who turn to Christ in repentance and faith have this testimony, this witness from God that says, okay, that's bringing with it eternal life, not endless existence. Everybody's already got that. The issue is location, location, location. You know, where are you in eternity? Are you going to be with God or not? Not will you be? And God says, I've made eternal life, true life, zoe in its fullness and richness. Life that's tied to the way I created you. I created you for relationship with me. That life is possible to those who know Christ. That will be my gift to them. Only found through Jesus Christ who said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, the zoe. No one comes to the Father but by me. Those without Christ don't have life. That's simple. Sad, but simple. And most of the really crucial issues of life are simple, but profound. Simple, 
but often sad. God didn't make the truth complicated. Now, to understand all of its implications, yeah, that takes some thinking and time. But the core issues, he simplified. He said, here it is, black and white. This is the reality. Last week, we were looking at verses 14 and 15 and God's great promise to those who found eternal life in Jesus Christ because of their repentance and faith. And he says, for you, you can know that your prayers are heard and answered. You can talk now with the Heavenly Father just like a parent and a child because you've been adopted through Christ into his very family and and he treats you as a father and you can talk together and you can share with him. The real issue in prayer is never is somebody asking. The real issue in prayer is it's somebody hearing and answering. The world is filled with people asking. But is somebody hearing and is somebody answering? And the promise that God has made to us is that if we know Christ as Savior, that we have this testimony of eternal life. He says we can know that our prayers are heard. (laughs) We can know that they're answered in accordance with his will. And therefore, we can pray joyfully and confidently, knowing it's not just a waste of time. We actually have access to the Father. And we know that he'll always, as we studied last week, answer his prayers according to his will. He doesn't play games with us. He doesn't say, well, I'm going to answer your prayer this way like you were asking because you were dumb enough to ask for it. I'm going to teach you a lesson by... No, no, no. As, as we saw in the scripture, he, he's, not, he's not the kind of father who does that. You ask for something, gives you a snake because you were just not wise in what you were asking for. God says, oh, no. No, I'm your heavenly father. All good gifts come from me. In fact, I'm giving you the Holy Spirit indwelling you, and he prays because you don't know how to pray as you ought. That doesn't mean you shouldn't voice what you would like, but voice it with the confidence and assurance that God isn't going to do it because you ask it. He's going to do what's his will. And he wants you to ask. He wants you to bring it before him. It takes a lot of pressure off of prayer, doesn't it? And that, there's great hope in that. By the way, as I mentioned earlier, God in the scriptures makes no such assurance to an unbeliever. Just as the pervasive deception of the fallen world is that everybody's a child of God, if they think about it at all. And the Bible says, well, no, that's not true. You only become a child of God given that right to be in that position if you place your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Everybody's a creature of God because he is the creator. Only people that are children of God are those that have turned to Jesus Christ. So the world has this fundamental misunderstanding. In the same way, that same sort of prideful confusion exists as a relationship of prayer, because they wrongly assume that God, if he's really there, is obligated to listen to anybody who asks help. And so they spend their life trying to find the genie lamp. You know, what, what can I do basically disregarding God, disregarding what it means to be in right relationship with them, but nonetheless, when push comes to shove and times are tough, you know, what can, how can I rub this thing so that, uh, so that God's end up obligated to do something for me? Sadly, that very misunderstanding is fed by countless false teachers out there. Never fed by the Word of God. You know, a lot of people say, well, I'm going I'm to let God prove himself. I'm going to tell the unbeliever, well, ask for this. Let God show you he's alive. He'll do this. I never say that to anybody. Why? Because the Bible doesn't say that. God's not in the business of proving himself to you by doing something like you ask him to do if you're in rebellion against him. I'll tell an unbeliever, as I told you last week, 
when they're facing difficult times, I tell them, and meaning, meaning it, I'm going to pray for you. I'm going to pray for the circumstance you're in. I never, ever encourage them to pray. Why? Because the only prayer I know I can encourage them to pray that will be heard is the prayer of faith and repentance. Not because they're asking God about the problem. And so in the midst of my telling them, I'll pray for you, and as I interact with them and come back and say, what's happening? I've been praying for you. Then I can talk to them about the one I'm praying to and why I'm praying for them and how they could pray. But first, they need to be in right relationship with that one. So he changes from just being the God of the universe to being your father. You follow what I'm saying? So much well-intended but biblically incorrect things are said about prayer as part of our, quote, witness to the world around us. God doesn't need your help by spin-doctoring the scriptures so that it makes it palatable to a fallen world. That doesn't give them power. The fact that it's God's word makes it powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword. You don't need my help with it. People say, well, people don't want to hear that. So what else is new? People have been not wanting to hear what God said since Eden. I mean, that's not different. But no matter how I would try to spin it, my most creative moments do not pierce the division of soul and spirit. My most thoughtful, reflective things to say don't do that. Only God's word originating with God himself has that kind of power. So what have I achieved in, anyway, if I've ignored that reality and somehow felt that I can somehow, I can somehow massage this so that somebody, somebody will listen to this? Height of presumption, brothers and sisters. Well, at any rate, moving on. We come to today's verses, verses 16 and 17. And now God, again, he's closing out this whole description of stuff. And it's, again, the message here is for believers, not unbelievers. Fundamental interpretation, fundamental hermeneutic principle. Who's the passage written to? Is it written to the believer or the unbeliever? Some passages are written to the unbeliever. Others are written to the believers. You better make sure you know who's the focus of a passage. First John's written to the believer. So there's not promises here for the unbeliever, at least at this portion of it. At any rate, he's telling us something about something we encountered earlier in the book. And that is the reality that God is a heavenly father for his children, takes that role seriously. He disciplines his children. We've already seen that we as believers, redeemed people, still stumble at times into sin. And that's why the great promise of 1 John 1, 9 and, and the great clarification and 1 John chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, that we have, a, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, who's the propitiation for our sin. That's why that was so important, because there's an answer to sin. And as he ends the first chapter in verse 10, saying only, you know, you're calling God a liar if you say you're not a sinner, and you don't stumble. Let's just be open and honest with God about it, and God's got a solution for his children. That's why we confess sin and admit it when we stumble. Now we find, at the other end of it, God is saying, listen, I've adopted you as my children. You're in my family. Chapter 3, remember, what a miracle, what an amazing wonder that we're actually children of God, that, that we would be considered in God's family right now. It is a miracle. 
But brothers and sisters, it's a miracle with two sides to the sword. You know, a miracle in terms of provision, a miracle in terms of discipline. God takes his role as our father seriously. Seriously. As adopted children of God, God says, I take it seriously enough. I love you enough. I'll discipline you if you need it. And our response to it is, well, I don't like that. My experience has been, and I know it's limited. I had eight kids, but here's the limited thing. I never had any kid that was happy that they were being disciplined. I don't know about you. You know, We could talk afterwards about that. Does that mean I always disciplined properly? No, of course not. But fundamentally, they weren't happy about this discipline stuff. You know, they were much happier about provision stuff. You know, like, you know, I want to, you know, can I go to the movie or what? You know what I mean? They were much happier about that part of it. But brothers and sisters, our Heavenly Father loves us, and he says, I'm your father. I, I take it serious. I'm, gonna, I'm going to discipline you. If you don't deal with sin right as my child, there's answerability here. Not... I'm not going to let you be my child. Anybody that deals with their child that way is in trouble because you don't have children very long. You know, Well, you'll be my child as long as you're perfect. Well, that doesn't work. You know, Same in reverse, by the way. You can be my dad as long as you're perfect. That doesn't work either. You know, so, uh, But in relationship with God, he is perfect. Everything he does is perfect. And when he carries out a perfect fathering, he disciplines us. He will do what's needed to correct what isn't right in our life. And we say, well, I take great, I take hope in that. And at the same time, Lord, I'm a bit apprehensive of that truth. <laughs> a bit apprehensive. Uh, I think you need to cut me slack. Anybody ever tried to approach, approach God that way? Say, so, well, I think you need to cut me a little slack here, you know. Uh, I've never been successful with that, you know. God, you know, cut me a little slack. Maybe next week, maybe maybe next month, maybe next year I'll deal with this thing that you're, finger, that you're putting your finger on in my life. But, you know, I'm doing all these other things for you. You know, like I took out the garbage. You know, what do you, what do you want? That's not the way God deals with us. You follow where I'm going with this? He says, listen, I'm your Heavenly Father. This is, you're in my family. I take it serious. I take it serious. Well, let's look at it. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask, and God will give him life. To those who commit sins that don't lead to death. There's a sin that does lead to death. I'm not saying one should pray for that, but all wrongdoing sin, but there's sin that does not lead to death. Here's the principle I've already just mentioned to you. God loves his children enough to discipline them. One of the great outcomes of salvation is to have been adopted into his family. And he takes adoption serious. It's like, now you're my kid. Now I'm your dad. Now I'm in charge of training you up in the way you need to go. You know, the, the challenge to the, to the parent in Proverbs, train them up in the way they should go. God says, I'm training you up now. Spiritually, I'm your dad now. I'm training you up. And he always trains right, but not comfortably. But not comfortably. He loves us. I'm your father. I'll love you. I'll provide for you. I'll protect you. Praise God. You know, that's, we need protection. <laughs> we need provision. All of that comes with the territory. But he says, I'm your biblical father. I'm going to discipline you when you need it. Boom. 
I can't tell you how many people over the decades have come to me and said, well, that can't be true. I don't see God that way. My response to them? Well, brother or sister, here we have another evidence of how biblically illiterate you are. Worse, we have another evidence of how idolatrous you are. Because the God you think you're serving is not the God of the Scriptures. Because how you picture him is contrary to what the Scripture says. That's what the Bible calls idolatry. It doesn't mean anything to me that you say, well, I don't see God that way. I assume you don't see God right. I assume I don't see God right, which is why I've spent years trying to understand what he self-reveals about himself. And I discovered, gosh, I had some wrong ideas. How about you? I had some wrong ideas about what God was like, who he is. God says, yeah, I know. You lived in a fallen world, influenced by the enemy of your soul. What do you expect to have? You're just... The world is infiltrated with idolatrous ideas. But he loves us enough to say, well, let's correct those ideas. Let me tell you who I am. Let me tell you what I'm like. Let me tell you my solutions, and so on and so forth. Well, I won't prolong on that. Hebrews 12 tells us a lot about this aspect of God's hand in our life, the disciplinary hand. I'm going to read some verses to you out of Hebrews chapter 12. Because they elaborate on something that John, under direction of the Holy Spirit, is assuming the readers already knew. Because Hebrews was written prior to the timing of 1 John. Hebrews chapter 12, I'm going to begin reading in verse 5. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son... Don't regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him, for the Lord disciplines the one he loves. And he chastises, disciplines every son whom he receives. It's for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as a son. For what son is there who his father doesn't discipline? Sadly, many in our current culture. Sadly, many in our current culture where somehow discipline is perceived as some way of stymieing the natural development of what's good inside. I'm thinking, the Bible says nothing's good inside. You know, something, something's really messed up here in the way people are thinking about this. Well, anyway, moving on. He says, For what son is there whom his father is not disciplined? If you're, if you're left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you're illegitimate children and not sons at all. You're not even in the family, in other words. He says, besides this, we've had earthly fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them. We didn't have to agree with them always, but we respected them. <laughs> you know what was going on. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For our human fathers disciplined us for a short time as seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good, that we may share in his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. That's the nature of discipline. It's like, oh, well, that, that was kind of enjoyable. Not a good situation, you know. It's like, boy, you've really done something wrong. Let's go get a burger. You know, it's not, that's not the way it is, guys. That's not, it, it's supposed to be punitive. It's supposed to be, okay, this is meant to teach you. Don't do this, you know. It says, all, all discipline for the moment seems painful rather than pleasant especially God's. 
But later, it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to the ones who've been trained by it. All right, getting back to 1 John. I'm telling you, the scripture tells us we have a Heavenly Father who loves us enough, take us seriously, that He's adopted us into His family. That's not just a reality that has to do with eternity. It's a reality that has to do with the temporal world in which we find ourselves. God says, I'm your Father. I'm going to deal with you in a certain fashion. I'm going to discipline you when you need it. And it is proof to us, Hebrews says, of God's love and proof to us of our position. And somebody says, well, I don't want God to love me that way. Well, that doesn't mean anything. He's going to do it. And you say, well, if that's the cost of being in that position, I don't want to be in the position of a child of God. Are you sure? I mean, <laughs> you follow how, how the, the picture of it forces you into a place where, begrudging or not, you say, well, I guess this is the way it is. You know? <laughs> so the issue isn't whether I'll be disciplined by God. The issue is how I'm going to respond to it. Because he's going to deal with me. He says this discipline from God is to bring us to our senses. This discipline from God, by the way, is never to atone for wrongdoing. I mean, God's not trying to discipline you in the point where you finally get this sort of smug, prideful feeling like, well, I did this wrong, but now I paid for it. Brothers and sisters, you can't pay for a penny, and neither can I. The only thing that pays for sin is the Lord Jesus and his death on the cross. God has, this has nothing to do with atoning for wrong. It has nothing to do with penance. Well, I'm going I'm to do something harsh to myself to sort of show, I did something wrong, I'll sort of self-atone on it a little bit by some penance. And on the other side of it, I'll feel like I did something. Brothers and sisters, that only takes you further from God, not closer. Because now you're more confused than ever, thinking there's actually something you can do about sin, something you can do to make it better with God, based on some penitential activity on your part. Absolutely unbiblical stuff. So well, then what's he disciplining me for? So I'll stop being stupid. So I'll come to my senses. So I'll say, it's not good to be in rebellion against God. <laughs> it's, not, it's, it's silly for me to continue to do what God tells me not to do. That's what it's for, to bring us to our senses. He wants us to come to our senses. And he'll do it in different ways. The scripture says this disciplinary hand of God, and I feel I need to talk about this a little bit to give you the backdrop to the end of 1 John. Disciplinary hand of God is a progressive thing. He takes different forms. The scripture says he begins by conviction of sin. How many like to feel convicted about sin? Nobody. In fact, the whole world's involved in trying to get rid of conviction, guilt, and, and the world has primarily done it by saying, well, it's all false guilt. You know. It's all, you know, whatever guilt you feel is just a cultural attachment. You've been socialized into confusion, and uh, you just need to come and understand you shouldn't feel guilty about anything you're doing. doesn't work, brothers and sisters. It doesn't work that way. So he starts off with guilt, kind of convicting us that we're doing the wrong thing. I was thinking of Psalm 32 in this regard. Verses 3 to 5, he says, When I kept silent about my sin, my bones wasted away by my groanings all day long. David's speaking here, and he says, For day and night your hand was heavy on me. Guilt. My strength was dried up like the heat of the summer. I acknowledged my sin to you, and i.e., I came to my senses finally, and I said, Well, okay, no, this, this hiding that isn't working out. I acknowledge my sin 
to you, and I didn't cover up my iniquity anymore. And I said, I'll confess my transgression to the Lord. And the Lord forgave the guilt of my sin. Isn't that a wonderful thing? That says, hey, that's how it works. I make you feel bad when you sin. To a certain degree, he does the natural world that way because he plants a conscience in us, some of his law. But the nature of fallen mankind is they spend a lifetime searing their conscience, according to the scripture. So the ability of that to really make them feel bad diminishes and diminishes and diminishes. But for the believer, that ain't going to work. He's going to make you feel miserable when you're not right. He's going to do something about it. That's why 1 John 1, 9 is so important, all right? If he's putting his finger on it, confess your sin, admit it. Homologeo, agree with God, say the same thing as. Admit your sin. Well, what happens to the child who refuses to come to their senses and acknowledge that this thing needs to be dealt with before the Lord? And by the way, there'll be children like that. You didn't really need me to say that because simply observing your own life would tell you, I'm kind of that child sometimes. God's trying to get my attention, and I'm doing whatever I can do to kind of not, not listening. So what, what does he do then, you know? Well, he says, okay, well, I'm, I'm going to move on sort of in a progressive way. I'm going to move on, and instead of just making you feel guilty about sin, I'm going to start to deepen in your life a sadness, a sense of distance from me, a spiritual depressive orientation, because you're not listening to the conviction so we need a little stronger message. We'll turn the volume up a little bit. You know, Not because God's making us atone. He's trying to bring us to our senses. Obviously, you're not listening at this volume level. So I'm going to up the volume level. In Psalm 38, uh, David, the psalmist, says in verse 4, For my iniquities have gone over my head like a heavy burden. They're now too heavy for me. In verse 6, he says, I'm utterly bowed down in prostate, and all day long I go about mourning. I mean, that's, that's a little more than feeling convicted. It's, it's a deeper sort of thing. And for the believer, God says, this is my plan for you. I'm going to make you increasingly miserable. People come to me and say, well, that's hardly a way to get people who want to come to church. You know, make them feel miserable at their sin. Well, take it up with God. He didn't ask me. This is what he does. You know, if you're, if you're my child, I'm going to make you increasingly miserable. If you're not where I want you to be, if you're rebelling against me, I'll make you increasingly miserable. Your life will no longer be demonstrating the fruit of the Spirit. This idea that Jesus came to give you life, give it more abundantly, that all becomes just sort of words, doesn't it? It's like, well, I compare my life against this person. My life doesn't seem real full and abundant right now. You know, something's, something's wrong. Something's wrong. Better not have people look at my life too closely. Or they'll wonder whether the message I'm telling them about Jesus is really true. He says, well, what happens when people put up with that for a long time and don't change? Does God have anything else in the toolbox? You know, is there anything else he's using to get our attention? And the answer is, well, yeah, yeah, yeah. He, he, he has other tools. For example, one of the things the Bible tells us clearly is that our God cares enough about us to bring us to our senses. He'll use physical illness to do that. Oh, all physical illness is the product of God's discipline? No, it's product of living in a fallen world. But sometimes it's his tool for disciplining us. You say, well, where do you get that? Well, 
pervasively through the scriptures, but I'll give you, I'll give you an idea. In Psalm 38, I read to you some verses already. In verse, verse 3, it says, There's no soundness in my flesh because of your indignation, Lord. I mean, that's, what, that's, that's, a, that's a Hebrew expression to describe sick to my stomach. You know, it's like, you know I got diarrhea. You know, something's not right here. You know, that's, that's what that means. Uh, he says, there's no health in my bones because of my sin. Verse 7, for my sides are filled with burning. There's just no soundness in my flesh. I mean, that doesn't sound like merely emotional, does it to you? I mean, it sounds like there's a physical dimension to this. God does that. But, but, well, Hebrews, I'm sorry, in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, talking about people who were wrongly partaking of the Lord's Supper and doing it in a way that just totally missed the point of remembering God's Christ's work on the cross. And, and he says... God was disciplining the Corinthian church, and in verse 30, he says, that's why many of you are weak and ill. <laughs> what? Because God's disciplining you. You're doing, you couldn't be doing it wrong without being, having the earlier stages, and you're ignoring those, so he's, now some of you are weak and ill. Because God's saying, hey, come on, let's get your attention. Let's get your attention. The Bible tells us God's disciplinary hand in the children's life is progressive in nature. He allows it by design to get louder and more severe to get our attention. A theologian I really respect said, call this the two-by-four in the mule doctrine. What's that? You can have a stubborn mule. They won't do what you tell. You get two-by-four. Yeah, give them a whack. Then the mule will do what you tell them to do. And I thought, well, that's a pretty profound way to talk about this deeply theological concept, isn't it? It's like God looks at you and says, you stubborn mule. I've, been, I've, I've went through this, 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 and this. You're still just going your own way. All right, what's back here in this toolbox? Hey, chunk of two-by-four. Whap! You know, get your, get your attention. Why? Because he wants to punish us for sin? No, it has nothing to do with it. Remember, it has nothing to do with atonement. It has nothing to do with penance. You and I are hurting ourselves and hurting other people and ultimately obstructing the kingdom of God's expansion in this world to the degree that we are under discipline from God and not dealing with our sin properly. That's why he's doing it. Because he loves us and he loves the lost and he loves the found. And if you're persisting in a sin in your life and not dealing with it, you're hurting everybody. So God says, I can't put up with that. It's not in your best interest. It's in nobody's best interest. And so I'm going to progressively discipline you, bring you to your sense. You say, well, why would it be that way? Hebrews 3 makes it plain to us. Listen to this verse, verse 13. Exhort one another every day as long as it is called today, talking about believers now, you know, challenge each other. Why? So that none of you listen to these words, may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. You see, the problem with sin in our life not dealing with it properly isn't just that we're displeasing God. Sin is an active, aggressive infection that causes, besides displeasure to God and obstacles to things, it does two things in us. Number one, it deceives us. So we don't even... It we're self-deceived is the meaning of the Hebrew there. We, we don't read our own self properly. We're deceived about what's going on. We don't see it very well. 
And then secondly, it says it hardens you. Now there's a double problem for which there is no answer apart from God doing something. If I'm getting increasingly self-deceived so I can't assess myself anymore, I think everything's okay and it's not okay. Like the, the classic book back in the, you know, 40 years ago, I'm okay, you're okay. Fact is, nobody's okay. That's the reason for the gospel. But uh, anyway, uh, here, I'm getting self-deceived, so it puts me in a bad place. If I'm, if I'm self-deceived, I'm, I'm easy for the enemy, master of deception. I mean, I'm already halfway there because I'm already self-deceived. You didn't have to work hard, you know, just to add a little bit more to it. But I'm also hardened. What's that mean? Calloused. I become increasingly insensitive to the normal means of drawing my attention. Guilt. That's a double problem. And left to yourself, what are you going to do about that? How are you going to solve a problem that your self-deceived even exists? And how are you going to solve a problem that inside of you, you've become increasingly calloused to, so you're not even aware it's a problem? The answer is you're not. You're not. God says, yep, actually, that's how sin works. I'm not going to leave you there. I'm going to do what's necessary to stop you getting hardened and self-deceived, and I'll do what has to happen to bring you to see it. There's hope in that, by the way, for all of us in our dealings with God. There's hope in that. Don't look at it as a fearful, trembling thing. It's hope in it. What hope is there without that? I mean, we'd all be neutralized and on the shelf. I mean, it wouldn't take long. By the way, that's why people who are out of fellowship are neutralized and on the shelf. It doesn't take long to get you there. That doesn't mean that it doesn't take long to get you living grossly immoral lives. It just means it doesn't take long to make you end up living essentially wasted lives. Because you're self-deceived and hardened. You don't even know it. That's why God says don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together in Hebrews chapter 10. We need each other. We will be hurt by sin until we deal with it, until we confess it and forsake it. And so God says, hey, I love you too much to let that happen. I'm going to keep on keeping on. I'm going to keep on disciplining you. Well, let's get back to it. He says in verse 16, he says, if anybody sees a brother committing a sin, he shall ask. What's ask? That's prayer. He says, you shall ask. Pray for them. You see the brother involved in that. God commands us to pray for the stumbling brother or sister. You see them increasingly reflective of some sort of self-deceived, hardened sort of thing? Keep praying for them. Just pray for them. Remember, God's already said, I went to the trouble of giving you these verses about the fact you have access to me. I'm your heavenly Father. I promise to hear. I promise to answer according to my will. Say, so here's a problem with this person. You pray for them. If they're a brother, pray for them. A sister, pray for them. Prayer, what a practical expression of koinonia. We look and you say, boy, I think you're getting self-deceived. What can we do about that? And God says, well, you start by praying for him. You say, well, what do I pray, Lord? What do I pray? Here's what you don't pray. Oh, Lord, make him feel better. I started several decades ago refusing to pray that prayer for anybody. My prayer is make him feel worse. If, if, What's going on in their life is the product of your loving discipline in their life. I'm not doing them any favor by asking you to take the discipline away. Make them feel worse. So they can get out of discipline and start moving forward in life. 
You say, oh, well, that's not a very loving thing. No, what's not loving is to say, take the discipline away and let him go down the tubes. That's not loving. But to say, no, I'm not going to let him go down the tubes. At least they're, if they're going down there, it's against me kicking and screaming to keep him from going there. I'm going to say, God, do more. Every child of mine who doesn't know God, I say, make them more miserable than ever. Make this week a new week of misery in their life. I pray that every week of my life. Make their life miserable. Because I love them too much. So you don't pray that God will get rid of his discipline in them. Oh, they're suffering so much. Good. Good. What hope is there if they're not? (laughs) That's what's supposed to bring them to their senses. Pray for them. Pray that they would act on the discipline of God. Because here's the fact of the matter. God ain't going to stop his discipline on them no matter what you're praying. You can keep praying. You're going to keep disciplining them. You can pray and waste your prayer because you're not praying according to the will of God, or you can pray according to the will of God. But God's going to keep on doing what he's doing. He's not going to stop it because there's a bunch of people who got together and agreed. We think they've suffered enough. Don't do that, Lord. The Bible doesn't give us that sort of crazy idea. The Bible says, no, no, no God's going to keep on. Pray for them that, they, that he can stop because they stopped, because they started doing things right, started being open to him again. And why is he doing all this? To make them pay for their sin? I already said, no, that's not what it's about. It tells us here what he wants to do is give them life. He says, pray for them that God would give them life. Zoe. He wants to give them life again. They cannot have the full and abundant life if they are rebelling. If they are resisting being who God's called them to be, they could pray forever and they could sing every worship song and they will still be absent the full and abundant life of John 10.10. It won't happen. Why would God let it happen? It doesn't make any sense. He doesn't want them to have contentment in the midst of disobedience. He wants contentment to emerge from right relationship. Can you imagine being contented out of the will of God? I mean, what would that help anybody? And how could God even work that way? And yet I see people pray that way a lot. And I'm thinking, wait a second, let's, let's, let's have some sanity here. Let's, let's step back and be reasonable about this. What, what are you asking God for? And what would happen if that was answered? Thankfully, he doesn't answer because you ask it. <laughs> he answers according to his will. There's hope in that. But Brothers and sisters, let's reason together. Then he makes a statement in here that I want to end on this. Uh, says, I, you know, pray for the brother. Right? You know, there's, there's, there's sin that uh, leads to death, and you know, praying for that's not going not gonna to work. And you say, uh-oh, <laughs> what's that about? What is this praying sin to death? I mean, wait a second, I wasn't happy about what you said previously. I'm even less happy about what you just said. You know, what's that mean? Yeah, it seems a little unsettling inside. What in the world is sin that leads to death? Well, first part of the answer is, he's not talking about spiritual death here. Because if he was, you might as well got rid of all the previous chapters in 1 John. So he's not talking about spiritual death. So 
What's he talking about? Well, you only have one other option. You know, talk about physical death. You say, oh, come on, that's not how I see God. God would never use physical death with one of his children, would he? Well, if you ignore all of Scripture, you could be left with that feeling like, well, God would never do that. But if you actually read the Scriptures, you find God did that quite a bit. Quite a bit. You say, well, that may be in the Old Testament, not the New Testament. Well, no, I'm, I'm reading through the New Testament. I come to Acts chapter 5, and at the very beginning of the church, as it began to develop in its Koinonia fellowship and in Jerusalem, two individuals did something that was so devastating because of what its consequence would be in terms of fostering duplicity with God and commitment to false images with other people of what you did and didn't do, that he says, Ananias and Sapphira, I got a plant at the very beginning of this process. We got to show this is a disastrous thing. This example that you were setting of misrepresenting stewardship, misrepresenting what was done, that will spread like wildfire because people are tendency toward hypocrisy anyway. You know, this has to be dealt with. Sanus and Spira lost their lives. Not their salvation, they lost their lives. You say, well, I don't know. I said, well, think about 1 Corinthians 11 that I was talking to about earlier where God can use physical illness to deal with somebody who's resisting his discipline. That 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 30 goes on and says, that's why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. And you say, no. <laughs> if, if a person stubbornly persists and rebelling against God's loving hand in their life to bring them to their senses. And the guilt and the depression and the physical illness isn't achieving an outcome. Do you mean God will go even further than that? And uh, the answer is, yeah. Yeah, he will. And the question comes back, why in the world would God go that far? It's like cutting off your nose to spite your face. I mean, what, what would that do? Well, that pushes you into the realm of saying the Bible doesn't answer that question. <laughs> but the Bible gives us some things to give us some answer to it that we can at least speculate on. Number one, why would God take somebody off the scene? To be with him, by the way, not to lose their salvation, but to be with him. Number one, because their continued existence in this world has reached a point where they are an obstacle to the salvation of other people, not an asset to it. Their very presence keeps people from Christ rather than attracting them to Christ. And God loves those people that are needing to be saved like he loves the children. He wants them saved. So it's conceivable, isn't it, that somebody's life has become such an obstacle to the gospel that God says, all right, I'm going to take you because I leave you there. There's going to be some people that are pushed away from the gospel by your life. When's that, when do you reach that point? Oh, a sliced idea. But you better leave room for that possibility. Or, another one. Your actions are having a devastating effect on other brothers and sisters in Christ. No other explanation for Ananias and Sapphira, by the way, than that. God says, this action is so disastrous. I've I got to get you out of there because it's like... This is where the cancer comes in. I've got to get you out of the scene. And you're not listening to me. 
I can't wait any longer. We can't postpone the chemo, you know. It's got to start. So he takes the person. Possible. Remember, I said all of these are speculative. I don't know. It's not speculative to say he does it. Speculative to say, well, why would he... Re- what when, what, it, what is it goes into it when he comes to that point? Thirdly, somebody simply reaches a point where they're no earthly good to the kingdom anymore. So God takes them home. Brothers and sisters, the only reason he doesn't take you home when you respond to the gospel is because you're supposed to be part of the kingdom expansion here. This is a terrible place to grow as a disciple. It's, it's a sinful world. Much more strategic to be discipled at the foot of Jesus in heaven with a fallen body no longer complicating the process. So why doesn't God, in his efficiency, simply do that? Because he left you here to touch a world. <laughs> he left you here to be part of a plan to reach the lost. And that's the reason he left you here. And you're no longer a part of that plan. It makes perfect sense to me that he would say, well, all right, I'll bring you up here then, because the only reason I was leaving you there was to do X and Y. You're not doing it, so come on up here. Again, this has nothing to do with losing where you're going, just how quick do you get there? You know, <laughs> what this is about. And you say, well, this is, this is, this is tough. Yeah. One of the one of the great theologians said one time, it's not popular with people, but God practices tough love. I thought, yeah, that's, that gets to it. We serve a God who practices tough love. Loves us enough to do what has to be done. Not what we'd like to see him do. I'm glad I serve a God like that. Not a God like I want him to be at, at some level. I want him to be that way in another level. I want him to be a God who does what's right, not, not what I'd like. But we wouldn't want it any other way, would we? Quick note to end. Not all illness, not all discouragement, and not all death and brothers and sisters in Christ have anything to do with God's disciplinary hand for sin. Yeah, that, that's the mistake that Job's friends made. They didn't have anything in the equation to explain Job's problem. So their conclusion was, well... You hit it well, but you must be a real mess. So let's just confess this stuff and God will deal with it. So the Bible doesn't tell us everything that looks like discipline is. But God does tell us you better account for the fact God's disciplinary hand is in the picture. Because he's a loving father. He's going to do what he has to do. And take that into consideration. And accept that a brother or sister who's struggling may well be under God's discipline. That's not a judgment call. May well not be. But it's possible. So then what do you do? Well, then when you pray, you say, well, I don't know. I can't see something in their life that your finger is on or is really clear. <laughs> uh, so, Lord, would you, would you see fit to heal this whatever, you know, help them to feel better? Or, Lord, because you see their heart and I can't. If they're simply under your disciplinary hand, don't heal it. Do what they have to do to bring them to their senses. Then I've covered the whole base, you see. I said, well, they may not be under discipline. Lord, intervene. Show your grace and mercy in this way. If they're under discipline, show your grace and mercy by making them more miserable than ever. 
You know what the need is. Here it is. You say, well, that's pretty harsh, Gary. Well, I didn't come up with it. God said it. Have I come up with harsh things sometimes? Of course, I'm a human being. But I can come up with that. God came up with it. So it's like he's just trying to alert me now to a dynamic as he gets to the end of the book of First John. He says, take this into consideration. This is part of what it's all about. As joyful and as wonderful as chapter 3 starts out, what amazing wonder it is that we can be the children of God and his family. He says, hey, don't forget, this is an all-treat night. Uh, if you're in my family, I'll be your father. And I'll deal with you like you need which you may not be happy about. We need it. We need a God like that who doesn't deal with us like we want him to deal with us. He deals with us like we need. He knows us perfectly. Brothers and sisters, however unsettled I feel in the disciplinary hand of God in my life, I would not want it any other way when I'm sensible about it. Because I know how far I can drift so quickly. You know how far you can drift so quickly. Isn't it wonderful that God says, if you do, it's because you're kicking and screaming and resisting everything I'm doing with increasing severity to try to help you realize you're heading toward the cliff. Don't do this. You know, We need a God like that. Praise God. We have one. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this chance to be in your word this day. Some hard verses, confusing in ways, and certainly we haven't plumbed the depth of everything that's there. But, but Lord, we're scratching that surface. Thank you for this picture of your fatherhood that shows us, in fact, how deep your love is for us. That you're simply not going to look the other way when our life is a self-destructive pattern. Thank you for the hope it gives us. Be with us in this day and in the week ahead we ask. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.